It's August 2003 in Miami. The temperature regularly reaches 91 degrees. The summer sits like a blanket of suffocating heat over the city. For one very sick man, Everett Howard Hunt Jr., the daily struggle to carry on living feels like it has become too much. The atmosphere in Hunt's bedroom is stifling. There's a ripe, unpleasant smell in the air. His son, St. John Hunt, Saint for short, strains to hoist his father out of a wheelchair onto the bed. At 84 years old, E. Howard Hunt has lived a long and colorful life. He's traveled widely in the service of his country. Certainly, that's how he would see it. As a former CIA agent working in so-called black ops, Hunt has had a hidden hand in some of the 20th century's major historical events. Assassinations, coups d'etat, wars. Throughout his career in the intelligence service, he'd been constantly drawn to the world's most volatile trouble spots. Working behind the scenes, pulling strings and doing whatever was necessary to further America's interests, as he understood them. His specialty was dirty tricks. When men like Hunt said they know where the bodies were buried, there's a good chance they meant it literally. To look at him now, you'd be excused for thinking the years had taken a heavy toll on him. He is a shadow of the dashing, debonair intelligence officer he once was, fearless to the point of reckless. Now, old age and a host of serious illnesses have convinced Hunt that the end is approaching fast. He has prostate cancer, which has spread into the jaw. His body is racked with pain from lupus, rheumatism, and gangrene. His left leg has already been amputated. A recent bout of pneumonia, the latest of many, has left him weaker than ever, and with fluid in the lungs that sounds like a death rattle. In his own eyes, he is a hero struck down by disease, bad luck, and betrayal, a loyal servant of disloyal masters. Once, he thought he could control the fate of nations and believed he had the right to do so. Now, he is dependent on others to help him carry out the most basic bodily functions. Hunt's relationship with his eldest son, Saint, hasn't always been easy. Saint knows he's been a disappointment to the old man, a meth addict for 20 years, half of that time dealing. Saint's clean now, has been for a couple of years, and part of the process of straightening himself out was to reconcile with his father. Plus, he has some questions for Dad about his time in the CIA, a few things that have been bugging him over the years. One question above all. Exactly where was his father the day President Kennedy was shot? As Saint props his father up on his pillows, Hunt beckons for his son to lean closer. He whispers that he'd like a diet root beer from the fridge and a pen and paper. At last, he's going to give his son the answers he's been waiting for. Hunt takes a sip from his soda, and then he starts to write. At the top of the page, he writes three letters, LBJ, and he draws a box around them. Beneath the letters and connected to them by lines, Hunt writes a series of names, each enclosed by a box. Cord Meyer, Bill Harvey, David Morales, Beneath the last name, 
connected to it by another line, he writes, French gunman Grassy Knoll. Hunt hands the paper to his son. Saint knows enough about JFK conspiracy theories to understand the significance of what he's reading. His father has just sketched out the key players in a plot to murder John F. Kennedy, the 35th president of the United States. If what he's alleging is true, it would prove what conspiracy theorists had been arguing for the last 40 years. That Lee Harvey Oswald was not acting alone when he shot JFK. Not only that, three of the names that his father has written down, Meyer, Harvey, and Morales, were CIA agents at the time of the murder. But perhaps the most sensational part of Hunt's note are the three letters at the top of the page. What Hunt appears to be saying is that the plot to assassinate the president originated with the man who some would argue had the most to gain from it. Kennedy's vice president, hurriedly sworn into office as president on Air Force One, only hours after the shooting. Lyndon Baines Johnson. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of a president gunned down as he rode in a motorcade through Dallas, a crime committed in broad daylight in front of thousands of witnesses, on a day that was seared into the memories of millions of people worldwide, November 22nd, 1963. It's the story of a cruel and shocking act captured in full color by an amateur cameraman, of a widow's distress and a generation's grief it's also the story of a second murder. The president's assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, is himself killed before he can stand trial. And it's the story of a man who claimed to know what really happened, who, as he believed himself about to die, blew the lid off the most explosive conspiracy theory in history. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. 
This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. A few days after he hands Saint the cast list of conspirators, E. Howard Hunt writes a fuller narrative of the alleged plot to kill Kennedy. More names come into the frame. David Atlee Phillips, the CIA's chief of Cuban operations at the time. A Cuban exile named Antonio Vesiana, And another man with Cuban connections, Frank Sturgis. Hunt's account details how one of the conspirators, CIA agent Cord Meyer, met Lee Harvey Oswald in Mexico. Initially, the plan was to kill JFK in Miami. But LBJ changed the itinerary to Dallas, apparently for personal reasons. At the same time, Hunt mails his son audio tapes of himself making essentially the same allegations. Hunt sincerely believes that he is dying. But Hunt doesn't die. Not in August 2003. In fact, not for another four years. His health improves and he lives to regret the decision to share his secrets with his son. It was clearly meant to be a deathbed confession but now he wants his notes back. He also doesn't want anything more to do with his son, telling Saint in a letter that he has never amounted to anything and never will. Saint knows that his father's second wife, Laura, is suspicious. She doesn't like him talking to Hunt about the Kennedy assassination. Laura thinks Saint is trying to take advantage of a sick old man with a failing memory. There's money in conspiracy theories after all. Kevin Costner had even offered Hunt $5 million for everything he knew about the Kennedy assassination. That had come to nothing. But Saint swears it isn't about the money for him. That's not why he answered his father's call to see him, flying from his home in California as quickly as he could. He went because, well, this is his dad. Whatever differences they may have had in the past are nothing compared to the bond of blood. Though he's disappointed by his father's change of heart, Saint sends the material back, but not before making copies. The allegations his father made are astonishing. Some might say incredible. American intelligence officers conspiring to murder the sitting president of the United States under orders from the vice president. Without this proof of what his father told him, Saint knows that he will never be believed. And even with his father's handwritten account and audio tapes, many will find the story preposterous. In his account, Hunt plays down his own role in the conspiracy, at one point, describing himself as a bench warmer. Still, even if we accept his word on this, he is complicit. By his own account, he knew about the plot in advance and could have prevented Kennedy's assassination. Why would he do nothing? Saint describes his father as a dyed-in-the-wool patriot. Whatever his views on Kennedy's politics, is it really possible that Hunt would turn a blind eye on a plot to kill the leader of the free world? To answer that question, we need to delve a little deeper into the life, career, and character of E. Howard Hunt Jr. 
Hunt is born in 1918. His father, Everett Howard Hunt Sr., is an attorney. The family lives in a large colonial-style house in Hamburg, New York, close to Lake Erie. He enjoys a privileged, prosperous, middle-class upbringing. Hunt is the archetypal wasp. In 1940, he graduates from Brown University with a degree in English. But World War II gets in the way of whatever plans Hunt might have. He joins the Navy, serving on the destroyer Mayo in the North Atlantic. An accident on board leads to a medical discharge. It's now, in 1943, that Hunt's career in intelligence begins, as he is recruited to the Office of Strategic Services, a new outfit set up by William Donovan, the future founder of the CIA. He is 24 years old. In the OSS, Hunt receives training in all the skills of modern espionage, including sabotage, hand-to-hand combat, how to disarm and kill an enemy stronger than yourself, survival techniques, and using ciphers and codes. His first posting is to China. There, OSS operations include arming and training local resistance groups to fight in areas occupied by the Japanese. One of the groups they are supporting is Mao Zedong's Red Army. In Hunt's own words, our role here was to operate outside of Japanese strongholds, dynamiting convoys and bridges, infiltrating Chinese agents into coastal cities to gather intelligence, and recovering and returning Allied pilots shot down on the mainland or offshore. In other words, it was varied work that would have appealed to a young man of action, who liked to get out in the field and make things happen. After the war, the OSS morphs into the CIA, and Hunt continues working for the new agency. This is the era of the Cold War. The enemy is no longer the Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan. It's communism, in whatever form, wherever it rears its head. Fortunately for his career prospects, Hunt is a fervent anti-communist. Like many cold warriors on both sides, Hunt is driven by a strong sense of mission. For him, communism isn't just an alternative economic system. It's an existential threat to the American way of life. He believes absolutely in the rightness of his cause, and so has no qualms about doing whatever is necessary to defeat the enemy. His actions in Guatemala are a case in point. In 1951, the people of Guatemala elect President Jacobo Arbenz on a platform of social reform. The powerful American-owned United Fruit Company isn't happy about it. They're the number one importer of bananas to the USA and stand to lose vast tracts of land under Arbenz's sweeping reforms. So they lobby the U.S. government to overthrow him. The job is given to E. Howard Hunt, who trains mercenaries in Honduras and engineers a CIA-backed coup d'etat in 1954. In Hunt's view, propaganda plays as big a role as armed combat in the success of the coup. He broadcasts false reports and invents a bogus rebel army with the aim of persuading the people of Guatemala that it's a popular uprising. Arbenz goes into exile, and a right-wing military dictatorship takes over. In the years after the coup, 200,000 Guatemalans will lose their lives under the oppressive military regime. If Hunt and the CIA manage to keep communism at bay in Guatemala, they are not so successful in Cuba. Fidel Castro comes to power as Prime Minister of the Republic of Cuba in 1959, after an armed communist revolution deposing President Batista. Happening 90 miles south of Miami, 
the Cuban Revolution brings the Cold War right to America's doorstep. Backed by Soviet Russia, the new state is a thorn in America's side right from the start. For men like E. Howard Hunt, it simply cannot be allowed to exist. Under President Kennedy's predecessor, Dwight D. Eisenhower, the CIA draws up a plan to remove Castro from power and usher in a counter-revolution. Vice President Richard M. Nixon is tasked with overseeing the operation, while the implementation is left in the hands of the CIA. The Guatemalan coup of 54 provides a template, and E. Howard Hunt's experience earns him a prominent role in the Cuban operation. Working alongside him is fellow CIA agent David Morales, one of the names in Hunt's later confession. Morales is rumored to be a specialist in the assassination of inconvenient politicians. 1960 is a presidential election year in America. As the Democratic candidate for the presidency, Kennedy is briefed on the top-secret plan. When Kennedy is elected, he inherits the Eisenhower-Nixon plan to invade Cuba, but turns decidedly cold on it. The then head of the CIA, Alan Dulles, and other advisors urge him to put it into action. Against his own best judgment, he gives the go-ahead. In April 1961, an army of anti-Castro Cuban exiles, backed by U.S. warships and air power, lands at the Bay of Pigs on the south of the island. The invasion is a disaster. Kennedy blames the CIA for forcing a harebrained scheme on him. The CIA blamed Kennedy for losing his nerve and failing to back up the invading Liberation Army with the promised bombardment. The anti-Castro exiles are left stranded in the mangrove swamps, sitting targets for the Cuban army. The Bay of Pigs disaster wins Kennedy few friends. In his eagerness to put the incident behind him, he fires CIA chief Alan Dulles. Other CIA agents fall foul of the purge too. According to a 1966 New York Times article, Kennedy confides to an official in his administration that he wants to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the wind. Hunt's CIA career never recovers. He is demoted from frontline duties for his part in the failure. Sidelined and unappreciated, he is left simmering with resentment towards Kennedy. In his eyes, the president betrayed him. He also betrayed the brave Cuban exiles who had risked their lives to help. Hunt sees Kennedy as soft on communists, and therefore, as a danger to America. In November 1963, just weeks before Kennedy's assassination, he has an opportunity to take revenge. In the early 60s, the focus of the CIA's anti-communist crusade switches to Southeast Asia, Vietnam in particular. In 1954, Vietnam had been divided into two states, North and South Vietnam. In the South, the nationalist leader, No Dinh Diem, was backed by the United States because of his anti-communist stance. But Diem began showing signs of dangerous independence. He also turned into a standard oppressive dictator, favoring his fellow Catholics and committing human rights abuses against the Buddhist population of South Vietnam. The West lost patience with him. In 1963, he falls from power in a CIA-backed military coup. GM is assassinated along with his brother. According to witnesses who are with Kennedy when he receives the news, the president is deeply shocked by the murder. And yet E. Howard Hunt somehow comes into possession of a number of diplomatic cables 
indicating that Kennedy approved the hit on GM. Hunt will one day admit under oath that he forged these cables. He was encouraged in this endeavor by Charles Colson, a Washington lawyer with links to Richard Nixon's presidential campaign. The plan was to make it look like Kennedy had ordered the killing of South Vietnam's Catholic leader and erode some of JFK's Catholic support in the upcoming 1964 election. As we know, their plan is never put to the test because President Kennedy is killed in Dallas before the election year begins. But let's just pause to think through the implication of Hunt's actions. He is a serving government official conspiring to commit a criminal act with the purpose of framing the sitting president for the murder of a foreign leader. That's not a conspiracy theory dreamt up by crackpots. It's not a rumor overheard in a bar. It's a fact which E. Howard Hunt owned up to in a Senate committee. It's a shocking admission, and it gives us insight into how conspiracy theories flourish. When men like Hunt are prepared to forge documents to bring down a president, it's only a small step to imagine they are prepared to do something worse. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. The faking of the GM cables brings Hunt's timeline right up to the Kennedy assassination. The big question is, where was Hunt that day? Was he, as some have alleged, in Dallas? This is something that Hunt will consistently deny. He will even sue a magazine for defamation for making the claim. So what, if any, is the evidence placing Hunt in Dallas? In the aftermath of the assassination, police search the rail yards near Dealey Plaza where Kennedy was shot. They find three men in a boxcar. Judging from their clothes, the men are homeless. They are taken in for questioning and later released without charge. In 1974, a photograph of the three men, known as the Three Tramps, comes to light. Conspiracy theorists latch onto the photograph, identifying the men in it as CIA agents and a known contract killer. Hunt is believed by some to be one of the Tramps. The claims are denied by Hunt and refuted by experts in facial recognition. And yet, St. John Hunt remembers the day he first set eyes on that photograph. It's 1975. He's in a phone booth in Maryland and he sees a poster showing the three tramps taped to a nearby telegraph pole. His jaw drops. In his words, it looks like my dad. There's nobody that has all those same facial features. People say it's not him. He said it's not him. 
but I'm his son, and I've got a gut feeling. Growing up, Saint always had doubts about his father's story of where he was that day. The way Saint remembers it, Hunt was not at home with his family, even though Hunt will testify on several occasions that he was. Hunt is also on record admitting that over the years, he had to repeatedly remind his children that he was with them at home on November 22, 1963, and that he was definitely not in Dallas. Again, this is something that conspiracy theorists have seized upon. It's almost as if he's coaching his kids. After all, why would he have to keep insisting he was at home unless they somehow doubted it? Even though he was only a fifth grader at the time, Saint's memory of that day is clear. Like many other people, he knows exactly what he was doing the day President Kennedy was shot. He was at school, playing on the merry-go-round during recess. The children were all called in, told the shocking news, and then sent home. It was a day like no other, and it's firmly embedded in his memory. But he has no recollection of his father being there. In fact, Saint insists that his mom told him straight out that Hunt was away on a business trip. What's more, he's certain she said that trip was to Dallas. Naturally, at the time, Saint didn't know his father was a CIA agent. According to Hunt, on the day of the assassination, he went shopping for groceries with his wife. They were planning on making Chinese food together that evening. He says it was something they did often. But Saint doesn't buy it. My dad in the kitchen? Chopping vegetables with his wife? I'm so sorry, but that would never happen. Ever. According to Saint, his father had little time or patience for his family. Mealtimes were especially fraught occasions. In an interview after his father's death, Saint told Rolling Stone journalist Eric Hedegaard, Whenever I made a sound, he looked at me with those hateful, steely eyes of his. A look of utter contempt and disgust, like he could kill. Saint also claims that his father was unfaithful to his first wife, Dorothy, and that he saw himself as a kind of James Bond figure, preferring cocktail parties and affairs to a life of humdrum domesticity. That doesn't mean that the Chinese food story isn't true, but if Saint is to be believed, it would have been a rare occurrence, one that would have stuck in his mind. In 1970, Hunt finally has enough of being sidelined in the CIA over his role in the Bay of Pigs fiasco. He leaves the agency and starts working for a PR firm, though some will claim the company is simply a CIA front. Then in 1971, he gets a call from his old friend, Charles Coulson. You remember, the lawyer who encouraged him to forge documents incriminating President Kennedy and No Dingium's murder. Coulson is now working in the White House as special counsel for President Nixon, or Nixon's hatchet man, to give him his unofficial title. Mindful of Hunt's very particular skill set, Coulson wants to recruit him for Nixon's own dirty tricks outfit, the Special Investigations Unit. The unit also has an unofficial title, the Plumbers. Bored and itching to get back to frontline black ops, Hunt leaps at the opportunity. Once, the enemy was the Germans. Then, it was the Communists. Now, working for Republican President Richard Nixon, it's the Democrats. And as in all the previous wars Hunt has fought in, anything goes. On the evening of June 17, 1972, 
there's a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate office building in Washington. Five men are caught red-handed on the premises. It's worth noting that one of them is Frank Sturgis, whose name crops up in the account of the JFK conspiracy that Hunt will write for his son in 2003. The men have crowbars and tear gas in their possession, as well as bundles of $100 bills that will eventually be traced back to the White House. One of them also has E. Howard Hunt's phone number. They are charged with attempted burglary and phone tapping. The circumstantial evidence strongly suggests that they were recruited by Hunt and paid by the Nixon administration. This is essentially confirmed by a series of expletive-ridden audio tapes that Nixon will later be forced to release. The Watergate break-in turns into the biggest political scandal in American history. The cover-up that follows will eventually bring down the president it designed to protect. For his part in masterminding it, Hunt will spend 33 months in prison. His wife, Dorothy, will pay an even higher price. On Friday, December 8th, 1972, Dorothy Hunt boards United Flight 553 from Washington National Airport to Chicago Midway. This is six months after the break-in, six months during which the White House has scrambled to distance itself from the five men arrested in the Watergate building. Nixon and his special counsel, Colson, still believe they can keep a lid on the scandal. E. Howard Hunt is in a sensitive but potentially powerful position. Already indicted for his part in the crime, Hunt knows that he could be facing a lengthy jail sentence. What's to stop him, or any of the other men arrested, from revealing who else is involved? To put it bluntly, why should he take the rap when Nixon gets off scot-free? With his legal costs spiraling, Hunt tries to negotiate some hush money. When Dorothy Hunt boards her plane, she is carrying $10,000 in her purse. We will never know for sure where that money came from or where it is ultimately heading, but many have speculated that it was paid by the White House to persuade the arrested men to plead guilty and keep quiet. Under the terms of his indictment, Hunt himself is prohibited from traveling, so it seems likely that Dorothy was acting as a courier on his behalf. That's certainly what St. John Hunt believes. So do his siblings. His sisters will never forgive their father for making his wife take that plane. Because at 2.29 p.m. local time, United Flight 553 goes down over a residential area, destroying five houses in a firestorm. 45 people die. Dorothy Hunt is one of them. Sabotage is suspected by some. The official investigation blames the crash on pilot error. Accidents like this are the natural breeding ground for conspiracy theories. But we have to ask ourselves, why would anyone have wanted Dorothy Hunt dead, especially if she and Hunt had already received money to buy their silence? The conspiracy theorists have an answer to that. They say there is evidence that Hunt was not playing ball with the White House. They point to the fact that Dorothy Hunt was traveling in the company of CBS reporter Michelle Clark. The theory is that the Hunts were going to blow the whistle on the whole Watergate conspiracy, and Michelle Clark was working on an expose with their cooperation. As with so many things in E. Howard Hunt's life, we will never know the truth for sure. The death of his mother hit St. Hard, but unlike his sisters, he doesn't blame his father. In his words, she got on that plane willingly and lovingly 
because that's the kind of woman she was. When it came down to it, she had his back. Without Dorothy to hold them together, the family falls apart. And when his father is jailed for his part in Watergate, Saint goes completely off the rails. It's 1975. He's 21 years old, working in a potato processing plant in Wisconsin. He starts experimenting with drugs, taking LSD, and doing cocaine. Experimentation turns to addiction. His drug of choice, crystal meth. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In 1977, E. Howard Hunt marries his second wife, schoolteacher Laura Martin. As a condition of the marriage, Laura makes Hunt promise that he had nothing to do with JFK's assassination. Some might question the value of any promise made by a man who has spent his life dealing in secrets and lies. After Hunt is released from the low-security prison camp at Eglin Air Force Base, Florida, the couple moves to Guadalajara in Mexico before finally settling in Miami. For 30 years, until his death in 2007, E. Howard Hunt lives in peaceful obscurity. He and Laura raise two children. Hunt gives every appearance of being a devoted family man. After the public disgrace of Watergate, his career in intelligence is obviously over. But alongside his work as a spy, Hunt was also a prolific author, publishing his first book, East of Farewell, in 1942. He went on to write over 70 novels, many of them spy thrillers. Titles such as Murder in State, I Came to Kill, and The Violent Ones give you some idea of the kinds of stories he liked to tell. Hard-boiled pulp fiction with a high body count, though perhaps the most intriguing of his titles is Guilty Knowledge. Now living in semi-retirement, Hunt returns to his first love, writing fiction. As a graduate in Spanish and English, Laura helps him edit over 40 of his manuscripts. At the same time, she continues working as a teacher. Hunt dies on January 23, 2007, at the age of 88. His autobiography, American Spy, My Secret History in the CIA, Watergate, and Beyond, is published posthumously. There is no mention in it of the sensational allegations he had shared with his son, though he does tantalizingly discuss the theory that Lyndon B. Johnson may have been behind Kennedy's death. The New York Times reviewer is not impressed, declaring E. Howard Hunt's work is in a long tradition of errant nonsense. There may be several reasons for Hunt's omissions. Either the account he gave Saint simply isn't true, or he realized that publishing it would expose him to perjury charges as the narrative contradicts statements he previously made under oath. The plot, as he outlines it in his 2003 confession, is sketchy to say the least. It raises more questions than it answers. We have to remember that even if it's true, E. Howard Hunt was an old man when he wrote it down. He may have had trouble remembering events that happened so long ago. For instance, he says there was a second gunman on the grassy knoll but doesn't name him. He merely mentions the fact that he was French. It's possible Hunt was never told the second gunman's name, 
or that he forgot it. But it seems odd that he's vague on this particular detail. Perhaps the most crucial detail of all. Most of the men he does name are dead, and so cannot challenge his allegations. These include his former CIA colleagues, Cord Meyer, Bill Harvey, David Atlee Phillips, and David Morales, as well as the man he claims was the instigator of the plot, Vice President Johnson. They are all names familiar to JFK conspiracy enthusiasts. Hunt describes his own involvement in a couple of brief paragraphs. It centers around a meeting that he says took place in 1963 between himself, David Morales, and a man called Frank Sturgis. Morales has been linked by some to the CIA's covert operations to assassinate Fidel Castro. Sturgis, too, is alleged to have had murky links with Cuba and the CIA. He will achieve notoriety in future years as one of the Watergate burglars. The three men meet in a Miami hotel room. At one point, Sturgis makes reference to a big event and asks Hunt, are you with us? Hunt has no idea what Sturgis is talking about. So Sturgis spells it out. Killing JFK. By his own account, Hunt is incredulous. Hunt starts to extricate himself. You seem to have everything you need, he says. Why do you need me? Unfortunately, Sturgis's reply to that question is illegible in Hunt's handwritten account. So we can only speculate why the plotters thought E. Howard Hunt would want to be involved in their conspiracy. This quote from Saint may provide a clue. There were probably dozens of plots to kill Kennedy because everybody hated Kennedy but the public. My dad has always said, thank God one of them worked. Whatever Sturgis says, it's not enough to persuade Hunt, who flatly refuses to get involved. In his view, one of the other conspirators, Bill Harvey, is a loose cannon. In fact, he describes him as an alcoholic psycho. At no point does he express the view that shooting the president is wrong. The meeting winds up soon after that. If Hunt is to be believed, he has nothing more to do with the conspirators and puts the Miami meeting out of his mind until November 22, 1963. When he hears about the assassination, like the rest of the country, he is stunned, but he also feels relieved. He counts himself lucky that he wasn't more directly involved in the plot. If true, it's a strange reaction. It suggests that he came closer than he admitted to accepting Frank Sturgis's invitation. When he reads his father's account, Zane is left with a feeling that Hunt is holding out on him. I think he knows a lot more than he told me, he's on record as saying. He claimed he backed out of the plot only so he could disclaim actual involvement. In a way, I feel like he only opened another can of worms. It's true Hunt is inconsistent. Was he a benchwarmer, as he claims at one point? Or did he walk away as soon as the scheme was mooted? Both can't be true. Given his interest in fiction, it's possible he made the whole thing up. CIA agents plotting to kill a sitting president? It sounds like the plot of the spy novel he never got around to writing. That said, rumors that the CIA was involved in JFK's assassination began circulating on the day the president was shot. And one of the first people to voice this particular conspiracy theory was the president's brother and attorney general, Robert Kennedy. A man who knew more than most about the dirty tricks the CIA were capable of. In fact, 
Robert Kennedy took the rumors very seriously indeed, as we will find out in the next episode. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we relive the day that President John F. Kennedy was shot. We look into the life and death of Lee Harvey Oswald. We ask the question, who else might have wanted Kennedy dead? And come up with the answer, plenty of people. We shine a light on the dark side of a man beloved by his supporters, but hated by his many enemies. We sort through the rumors, hearsay, and conspiracy theories in search of the truth. And we try to untangle what part, if any, E. Howard Hunt Jr. may have played in JFK's death. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Roger Morris. Supervising editor Ben Bishop. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound design by Matias Torres Sole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Rob Plummer. Mix master by Kean Ryan Morgan. 